If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and you really ought to have, this is a Bible church, you know. (laughs) Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11. This will be our text for this morning. Chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Father, this is your book. This is your truth. This is your word for us. I pray that you'll help me this morning to make it clear and understandable. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will choose to use it for your honor and your glory. Because we pray In your name, amen. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus came into this world, he came into a world where the people who lived in that part of the world, and I know all the way around the world, but in that part of the world, They lived in spiritual darkness. When he began his ministry in the land that he came to, there was sickness and suffering and sorrow and sadness covering the land and to a great extent demon possession among the people. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find very often Jesus coming into direct contact with demons, fallen angels, those who are anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-church and anti-everything that God is for. Jesus came, said Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, in a prophecy of his. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist, and he said, Jesus came to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Sometimes I think I have it bad, but they had it worse. And things for us are not really getting any better. As Jesus began his ministry, there were multitudes that were healed. I mean, everything. He healed many of them, most of them. 
In fact, in one gospel, it says after he had spoken, he healed them all. That is a demonstration of the very power of God. Lives were changed. The lame walked, the deaf heard, the dumb spoke. The blind could see again. The diseased, and there were many diseases there, the diseased were healed, and the demon-possessed were freed. Multitudes witnessed a multitude of miracles. So numerous. In fact, they were too numerous to count and too numerous to ever dismiss as something other than God at work in their midst. Multitudes. How many times have you read that word in the Gospels? Have you read through the Gospels? Multitudes. There were multitudes here and multitudes there. And how big those multitudes were, we have no idea. But they had language for smaller groups, I'm sure. But this was a lot of people coming to see Jesus. And to some of them, it was the biggest show that they had ever seen. When the Gospels give us account of all of the deeds of Jesus and how much life-changing experiences people had because of him. So many people, so many needs, so many heartaches and so many heartbreaks and so many broken lives and so many broken homes and it was a dark world that they lived in. But Jesus set the stage for the passage that we're going to consider in a moment in verses 20 to 24. Just look right up the column and uh, stop at 20 and we'll read back down. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They did not choose to have the God of glory, Jesus Christ, the one who came to be a sacrifice to pay for their sin so that he would be able to, after he rose from the dead, to take away their sin, not to cover it. He was no Old Testament sacrifice. He was God's greatest, perfect sacrifice, an absolutely sinless life who became sin for us. He who knew no sin 
became sin for us. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, those are a couple uh, towns up the north on the Mediterranean coast, if the miracles had been done that occurred in you, were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If they had witnessed what you have witnessed, they would have repented. They would have come to me with the greatest of all burdens, their own sinfulness. Hmm. Nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. And I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow. There's something right here that has nothing to do with the message, but you've just got to know it. God knows everything, does he not? Would you agree with that statement? Knows everything. This passage tells us that he knows the end result of every action no matter what direction that action took. The end result. That's why he could say these things. You make choices in your life, and I would trust that you pray about those choices and seek God's will in making those choices because no matter which choice you make, God knows exactly how that choice is going to work out. That's why God can be a perfect judge for sinners and a perfect judge of works for believers at the judgment seat of Christ, which is not a judicial judgment. And that bit of information is free. <laughs> Let's go to verse 28. Well, you see, all of those folks that he talked about in those three towns there, 
they were all astounded at what they saw. They all saw the miracles, and they could not deny that that was a true miracle. It's not somewhere where somebody would slap you on the top of your head and say, look at that healing take place there. Restored my arm. These were genuine miracles that only God could do, and they saw them all and they couldn't deny they were miracles. They witnessed them all. But they missed the glory. They saw the miracles, but they missed the glory. It was Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God come in the flesh, who was there in their midst, and he was the one that was doing it all. Remember Philip when all of this crowd was there and Jesus said, uh, we need to feed these people. Philip said, hmm, let's see. I'm pretty good at counting folks and uh, I know how much money we have. Lord, we're, we're short so much money. We don't have enough money to buy enough bread to feed these people. So we probably ought to send them home. Really? Well, it's a good thing to look at what you have, what you don't have when you make decisions. And Philip was making, putting things in order but he left something out. He knew how much money they had. He knew how much bread that would buy. He had an educated guess at the number of people were there and said that, oh no, it cannot be done. And he forgot that he was standing right next to the God of glory. He was there. He could do something. Philip had seen him do wonderful miracles, but could he do it then? Of course he could. The Pharisees saw the miracles, and they said that the miracles were the work of the ruler of the demons, and that means Satan the ruler of the demons, the fallen angels who followed him in rebellion against Almighty God. They saw them and refused to believe. And there were many others who might believe, who would believe if they could see just one more miracle. Ah, maybe two. Maybe two. After that feeding of the 5,000, 
They left that place and went over to the other side of the sea, and some of the people realized that the disciples had gone over there, and Jesus hadn't, or at least he hadn't gone with the disciples. And so when they were around where hmm, Jesus happened to be, and they came and saw him and said, how did you get here? Well, let's see. He walked part of the way <laughs> on the water. Uh, he said, you seek me not because of the sign. You seek me because I fed you and you ate the bread and you were satisfied and that's why you're seeking me. And they said, well, um, what do we have to do to work the works of God? Yes, there is one work that you have to do to work for God. Believe him. Believe in him. Well, that sounded good, but their reply was, what sign do you do? What sign will you do for us that will prove who you really are so that we can believe? How many signs do you need? How much information do you need? Maybe more. Many believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and many did not. Well, there were others that he would call. that would believe in him and choose to serve him as well as believe in him. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and remembered how the Thessalonians had turned to God first, from idols second, to serve a living and a true God. And they were going to serve a God who was here with them in the person of Jesus. And he had gone on to glory, but they were going to serve him. They were going to partner with him. And that's what our text is all about being a partner with Jesus in his business. What business is he in? Luke 19:10 For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost or those who are lost. He's seeking them and wants to save them. 
Wow. Verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That was an invitation first given to them. But because that's in the word of God, that's an invitation for you and I. Come to me. The word come could also be come, do come, come now. A friend of mine who has a funeral home over in Highland, name is Connie Kuiper, and he and I have been together probably at a hundred funerals, and uh, he always says something at the cemetery at the close of the committal service, and as soon as I have prayed for the family, uh, he has an announcement to make. The family has asked me to invite you to a funeral luncheon that is going to be held, and he tells where it's going to be held. And then he said, folks, that's not just an invitation. They really want you there. That's good. That's good. They really want, come to me. Do come. Come now. This was an appeal of Jesus to the people. It was an invitation. It was imperative. Why? Because there's not another answer available to your weariness and to the burdens that are placed upon you or you have placed upon yourself. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I wonder how many times Jesus gave that invitation during his ministry. Come to me to the eternal Son of God, to God who came in the flesh, to the God who knows you better than you know yourself, he says, come to me. He knows your needs, he knows your weaknesses, he knows your sins, he knows our sorrows. Come as you are, as weary as you are, as hurting as you hurt, as depressed as you are depressed, come to me. That's an imperative invitation. You need to come. That should be your first response. Jesus ought to always be your first response. As soon as you feel that weariness, as soon as 
you are hurt deeply. Maybe someone else did that. As soon as you are disappointed in yourself, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. It's part of an old song that a young girl sang here many, many years ago. Standing somewhere in life's shadows, you'll find Jesus. Come to him. He's the one who knows and cares and understands. Standing somewhere in life's shadows, you'll find Jesus and you'll know him by the nail prints in his hand. Come to Jesus. He is the one who knows and cares and understands. All who are weary and heavy laden, meaning burdens have been placed upon you by others, by yourself, but they're burdens nonetheless. And as soon as they become heavy, come to Jesus. Come to me and I will give you rest. Isn't that a good word? Don't you like that? I think today I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to rest. I'm going to just lay back on that bed and if my wife doesn't come into the room and take off my shoes so that I can rest better, (laughs) I'm going to rest. That is a wonderful word. And that can be a gift to you from Jesus. But only if you come and say, God, give me rest. Do you like acrostics? Rest, R, I'm relaxed. E, I'm expectant. I wonder what God's going to do for me next. S, satisfied. We're satisfied with Jesus. And T, triumphant. Triumphant. I am more than a conqueror. Jesus, or Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. See, I can always come out on top. I don't have to sink. I don't have to drown. I don't have to give up. I can come to Jesus. Now, sin is a burden that is shared by all. And the sin nature is something that we have, and we have a sin nature, all of us, and that's what makes sinners sinners. 
is your sin nature. People are not sinners because they do bad things. They do bad things because they're sinners at heart. They're sinners when they're born. And every sinner needs Jesus. He died for me and he died for you. The Apostle John wrote in his gospel in chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, to his own land, to his own people, uh, and they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God, the children of God. A permanent relationship. And one time it was explained to me how that I am a sinner because I have a nature that wants me to sin. And I follow that nature. But there is a God who loves me and wants to take away the penalty that God places upon sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin leads to death. The wages of sin, the results of sin are, is death. Death means separation. Death always means separation. But in this situation, death is separation from God. And it might be for time, the time of our life, but it might be for eternity. Because between now and when eternity begins for everyone, and that is the day of their physical death, eternity begins for them. Between now and then, we're separated from God, and we can come to Jesus just as we are. And those that received him He made the children of God. Even those that believed on his name. Those are the key words, receiving and believing. Salvation is a free gift, but only if you receive it. Believing is your choice. But he is believable. All of his miracles attested to that. All of his actions attested to that. And only Jesus is the answer to the burden of sin. And if you're here this morning and you do not know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you belong to him, that you're a child of God because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, 
this would be a great day to just settle that. Come to him today. You'll be a child of God. But he wants us to be disciples too. He wants us to live for him. Oh, there's, there's something besides our passage. There's something else in the word of God that's made out of wood. The yoke was made out of wood and the cross was made out of wood. The cross upon which Jesus died to give his life and shed his blood that we might have eternal life. And the word of God tells us in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, to be my disciple, if anyone wants that, he must deny himself, and that does not mean deny things to yourself. God knows all of your needs. He knows what you need. Sometimes he blesses us with some things that we may want, but he knows all about our needs and is able to do that. But he wants us to be disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A cross is not something that you cover with gold or precious stones and wear around your neck, although there's nothing wrong with doing that. But when he said, take up your cross, take up his cross, if the one wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And a cross has one meaning. It is something on which you die. He makes a suggestion, die to self. That means put him first before self. I remember one time, yes, I remember one time we had a, um, a staff meeting and we were talking about priorities. You know, God first, other second, me last. And uh, one of the guys said, well, I think it is God first, uh, family second, the church third, and he got down to fourth or fifth, and that was priority. Don, what do you think? I said, no, Jesus deserves first place. Absolutely. Why? He's God. Deserves first place. Well, what about second place? If you choose to come to Jesus, commit yourself to him, you never have to worry about what's in second place, third place, fourth place. Never. Why? You put Jesus first, and he'll give you the wisdom, 
the common sense to know at a cert, on a certain time and certain day, certain year, who to put in second place and who to put in third place. And I know at least Mike here knows exactly what it is to choose who gets second place on a given day. Why? He's got to do something connected with God's call upon him to the ministry. I have to do that. Oh, you mean we, we have to put somebody in second or third place or maybe fourth place? That's hard. But it's not all that hard if you are putting Jesus first. Those closest to you are putting Jesus first. You never have to worry about second, third, or fourth because it's going to work out. Well, he wants to be partners with you, and we're going to have to fly. Take my yoke up on you and learn from me. A yoke was a piece of wood, had two loops below it, probably made out of wood too. And you would have one ox here and one ox here and one yoke and two positions. And they would hopefully all want to go in the same direction. Jesus said, I want you to take my cross. I want you to put on my cross and learn from me. My grandfather, until the day that he died, or until the month that he died, always plowed his land with horses. He had three horses, so they would divide up the, um, the work by never having to work more than two days in succession. And also, from time to time, he had to buy another horse. And it was fresh. Never worked with the other horses. So he put his best horse and hitched with him, not in one yoke, but two, each with a collar on it. And they were together, and the more experienced, the stronger, the better of the two. That's why Jesus said, take my yoke, because I'm going to be the wisest, the best, the strongest partner you've ever had. And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And when I start to turn left, you better be right there. Right there beside me because we're going to mess everything up. One day my grandfather said, Don, 
I want you to do something for me. I said, what's that? He said, there's a field over here, and there's weeds growing up in the furrows between the, uh, the hills of uh, whatever was sown there, and uh, probably beans. And I want you to take the harrow and go and take care of that field. I said, ooh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> he said, that's okay. The horses do. I said, really? He said, yeah. Just take them across, go through the gate into the field. You can kind of tug on the left-hand rein, to, but they'll know to turn right. And they'll be lined up, and they'll go right down the field. And those big old spikes taking out all the weeds all the way down. And the horses aren't trampling on anything. And they turn around. I didn't have to tell them how to do that. Why? That new horse was with a horse that knew his business. You see, when God wants you as his partner, to be yoked together with you, to go in the same direction as he's going, to be his partner in his business, wow, what a wonderful experience. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart that means I'm not going to yell and scream at you when you do something that's not just right. He wants us to serve him, wants us to be with him in his yoke, not ours. And that means being gentle and humble. He has all of the love and compassion for us that we would ever desire. And you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls is found not in a feeling. It's not, oh, I'm going to take a nap today. Not that kind of rest. It's a place of rest. And that's heaven. When you're done serving God, he's got a place of eternal rest for you. For my yoke is easy. These big collars that horses had on them, they need to be kept nice and neat. If anybody ever played baseball, you know that it's better for the leather on your glove to be supple and flexible, and so you put oil on the palm of that and a little bit all over, but especially on the palm. And if it's new, you really oil it up and put that ball inside there and 
wrap a string around it to hold it so that you've got a pocket there in catch anything. And uh, if you're on a farm, though, things have a way of drying out and getting rust, uh, not rust, getting rough, uh, dried out, and a horse and the collar on the horse begins to rub. And that dry, hard leather rubs. It's not easy. So my grandfather said, Don, go get that can of pine tar and <clears throat> dip your hand in there and go to that horse. He's worn all the hair off there and part of the hide, just take some of that and smear that pine tar on that sore and he'll be better in a couple of days. And, you know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My yoke working with me is not going to irritate you. It's going to make you glad. It's going to say, oh, I feel good in this yoke. I am enjoying this. Rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. It's easy to be in business with me. I'll show you how. I will teach you how. It's all right here in the worker's manual, in my partner's manual. And all you have to do is learn about me. And as you learn about me, you'll be learning from me. And what I do, you do, not by yourself, because you're still in yoke with me. From now, from the day you say, Jesus, I want to be your servant. I want to be in a yoke with you. I want you to use my life for your honor and for your glory. And I want to stay right with you and just keep right on going so that I can honor you and be a blessing to others. Father, we pray that every time we feel, feel weary, downhearted, confused, hurt, that we'll come to you. That we'll want to be your child, first of all, your disciple, your partner, and your eternal worshiper in heaven. Thank you, God, for this very small portion of scripture, but for what it can mean to us to tell ourselves, oh, this is a time you need to come to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.